So this is part three of the, mess, of the series going through Revelation, and where we left off last time was an interesting vision about the four horsemen that you see in Revelation 12. And that section really answered one important question that we all have at some point or another in our life. The question is, why is there evil in this world? And a lot of times we can feel like evil is surrounding us. And we almost feel bad because it's like, well, I should be focusing on God instead of focusing on evil. But here's the interesting thing about Revelation. God doesn't minimize evil or tell you just to get through it. God actually numbers evil and he names evil because he has already surrounded evil. He doesn't need to explain it because it has been surrounded. And quite honestly, this can be a relatively easy question to navigate in life. Because even, it's in, even in the hard times when evil is coming into our life through many different ways, there's usually a good part to it. We can see the silver lining even when bad things might happen. But today we're getting into a deeper question that takes us a level deeper. And I'll be honest, the question that we're going to address today is a question that I don't know if I have a very good answer to. Because Jesus, neither Jesus nor the scriptures ever really give us the answer. The question is, why is there an evil one in this world? If you take the Bible at face value, there is an evil one, the devil, Satan. And it might make you wonder, if if God is more powerful, and if God really has our best interests in mind, why would he allow this evil one to exist? Why does he allow the devil to be there? And unfortunately, the Bible never gives us an answer. Like, we don't get a voice from heaven saying, here's my plan for allowing there to be uh, an evil one in this world that, that will try to tempt you and lead you astray. And, and for me, like, here's, here's just the bottom line, like, thing we, we all have to figure out. Like, as a parent, I'm okay letting my kids ride a bike, understanding they might skin their knee. It's, it's a... It's a It's part of living, right? There's going to be bad things that might happen, but that's okay. It's one thing to let your kid ride a bike. It's another thing to invite a murderer to live in your basement. The devil is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, and God has allowed him to stay. Well, today we're going to dig into Revelation chapter 16, where we see a fantastic vision, a marvelous vision, a vision that startles the imagination and grips the heart. As God doesn't, again, just ignore this enemy that's out there, but he gives him a name. He gives him a vision, an appearance. And as we try to reconcile this on our own, like, why does God allow him to be there? what, What I think we all go through is, well, maybe the devil is just a metaphor, Like, you know, there's evil out there and Satan is just evil embodied in a a metaphor or in an idea. But what I want to tell you today is number one on the sheets, Satan is real. The devil is real. First of all, because Jesus talked about it, Jesus, the one who died and came back to life said, watch out, the devil is out there. And not only did Jesus talk about the devil, but Jesus experienced him when he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted day after day. He is very real. We can't just write him off as some metaphor or idea. But in Revelation 16, it gives us some hints as to what God has done to the devil and also why he has permitted him to exist. Before we get into Revelation 16, I want to more formally give some ground rules for 
what it takes to interpret the book of Revelation. And I kind of mentioned a few things last week, but if you like to take notes, this would be a good time to get out your pen or pencil because we can't go through the entire book of Revelation in this series. It would be a two-year series. But what we can do is equip you with some ground rules for how to work through it on your own. And especially in Revelation 16 and 17, these ground rules are so important to keep in mind. The first rule is simply this. Remember the original audience. Go back to part one of our message where Ben talked about what Christians in the late first century were going through. It was a, a season of intense persecution where a person who, who heard about Jesus and believed in him one day could be burned alive the next. It was a season where Christians were so thoroughly confused because they thought that Jesus was establishing a new kingdom, but they couldn't see this kingdom taking place. What if they had actually lost? So this, just keep in mind the original audience that this was written to. The second ground rule to remember is to use the Bible to explain itself. Like if you're reading through Revelation 16 and you're like, I have no idea what this means, you should not go to Google and say, what are the signs of, you know, or what, are, what does this mean? What you should keep doing is just keep reading because so often it explains itself and we're gonna see some examples of that today. Let the Bible explain itself. I can't give you some magical divine key outside of the Bible to help make sense of it. So just let the Bible explain itself. And then finally, this is hard. This is going to be difficult maybe for some of you. Avoid time-sensitive interpretations. Here's what I mean by that. Just for today, we're going to look at three beasts in Revelation 16. Actually, there's two beasts in Revelation 17 that we won't have time to get through. But as I studied this section this week, I saw all, all sorts of interpretations. Like the dragon stands for artificial intelligence, which in the next five years is going to take over our world and planet. And they went through Revelation and saw how artificial intelligence and high-level computing is all over the, the book of Revelation. Uh, you can also see um, there's some ideas how the coronavirus is in the book of Revelation, because as we all know, corona stands for crown, and in the book of Revelation, crown is a very um, prevalent symbol that's used. So obviously, coronavirus is throughout the book of Revelation. Or one other thing I found is, um, if you look back at the events of 9-11 in the World Trade Center, the towers, there are actually books written claiming that at least one author said there were 40 predictions in the book of Revelation about what was going to happen on 9-11. These are just three examples, and I don't mean to make fun of this or belittle this. I love it that people are studying the Bible, but you should be aware of time-sensitive interpretations because just picture this, just picture this. God had John write out this book of Revelation in the late first century, which in itself is a task. But then just picture this, God is basically telling the first century Christians, hey, guys, I know you've got it rough, and I know you're doubting my existence and all, but could you take this book and could you make a bunch of copies? It means nothing for you, but the people 2,000 years from now are going to love it. What kind of a God would, would ask that of his people who are suffering and wondering where he is and saying, hey, here's, here's something that people 2,000 years from now are really going to love? This is as applicable to the first century Christians as it is to people today. Avoid time-sensitive interpretations of what you see. 
There are no new doctrines or new teachings taught in the book of Revelation. Rather, God takes what has already been communicated in word and he, he communicates it through vision to startle our imagination, to, to move our emotion and to stir our heart so that we don't just hear that God is with us, but we can see and feel that he is with us. So that's my final caution. If you, enter, if you open up the book of Revelation looking for something, you're probably going to find it. Whatever you are looking for, you can probably find it. If you're looking for something that happened earlier this year, you could probably make it up and find it somewhere in the book of Revelation. But this is not a time-sensitive interpretation. This is something that God has for all of his people of all time. So with those ground rules in place, Let's open up to Revelation chapter 16 and see what exactly it is that God tells us about this spiritual enemy known as the devil or Satan and why it is that God would allow this enemy to remain in this world. Here's what John saw. A great sign appeared in heaven. There was a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. What I'm going to do here breaks one of the important rules of how to work through Revelation, but since we're just looking chunk by chunk, I have to share with you what's coming up as we make sense of what we're seeing here. As we look at the chapter as a whole and see how it explains itself, here's what we see in these two verses, we see that the woman who, what I'll acknowledge is maybe at first glance might seem like the Virgin Mary or something like that. But when you look at the rest of this chapter and as you look at the other ways in scripture where a woman is used in a vision, this is really a reference to God's people. God's people who are in this world, we have the sun, we have the moon. Um, and a further reference is this crown of 12 stars on her head. 12 is a reference to like the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 apostles. It's, it's a sign or it's a symbol of God's people on earth. This woman represents perhaps the Jewish people who for centuries and centuries were waiting for God to fulfill the promise that he had made, to bless all nations through them and to bring a savior from them. And it would be through people, it would be through human ancestors that ultimately the savior would come from a woman, through a woman. And just note here that she is in pain. There are things going on in, around her and within her that are not comfortable, are not good. And it's almost as if there's this sense of waiting, waiting for deliverance or delivery to happen. Then another sign. So John shapes, he moves his um, attention elsewhere. He says, then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red, fiery red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. I don't know how that works. Like, did some heads have two horns and some have one? I'm, I'm not sure. But seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on its head. Now, if, if you read through Revelation, seven is often a reference for God. Um, three triune plus four on earth um, indicates God's interaction with us on earth. Seven is often a reference for God. But what we also know from the first century is that Rome was known as the city on seven hills. And in other revelations, we see Rome symbolized by seven, 
seven hills. And perhaps what we see here, this is the perhaps part, but then I'll tell you what the for, for sure part is. Perhaps what John is getting to is he's acknowledging for these first century Christians, look, you, you, you see Rome as the enemy, and you are right. It is a ferocious enemy with 10 horns. Ten um, Horn was a symbol of power, 10 symbol, symbolizing complete. Rome is an enemy with complete power. But that's not the real enemy. There's something deeper, something hidden that you have to be able to see because this is a spiritual force that is against you, not just a political force. So perhaps this vision was pointing to Rome as kind of the thing on the surface that they were dealing with, but what we do know for sure with the rest of this vision is it explains who this dragon really is. Later, it goes on to explain this is the devil or Satan. And as it goes on, the, the vision gets a little gruesome. It says, its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Which, again, you could make interpretations. Is this talking about a meteor shower? Or what does this mean? Remember, this is symbolism that applies to all people of all time. What the most common interpretation of this is, is that when you think of the devil, um, originally he was a good angel, a created angel that God had made as part of his creation. And then at some point, the devil turned against God. He, he thought that he could take the place of God, and so there was some sort of revolt or revolution. How this happens on a spiritual level, I have no idea, but the book of Revelation gives us a vision of what it must have looked like if you could have seen it with human eyes. This devil, the dragon, he swept out a third of the stars, and what almost all commentators agree on is that this is a reference to the demons who came with him, taking good angels that were created by God and now employing them in his service. So a devil with a third of the angels, now demons working with him, there are two sides, good and evil. The good news is at least we have them outnumbered, like two-thirds to one-third. So I do know math, but what we see here is just this glimpse. Again, this crazy glimpse of what happens on a spiritual level is, 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 is portrayed to us in a vision that we could visualize in human terms. And then it goes on. The, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. I can't imagine what that was like for John to see this. Like, no, get out of the way. He, he sees what is about to happen. This dragon seems like there's no hope for this poor woman or for her child. And then it keeps going. It doesn't slow down. This vision just goes point after point after point. The next verse, it quickly says that she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And thanks to the references here, it's so clear, again, what comes next also, is that this child is symbolic of Jesus coming into this world. Coming from human ancestors, yes, but coming as a deliverer for them. Coming as one who would rescue. Coming as one with an iron scepter who ultimately would not just rule one nation, but would have a kingdom that extends across the entire world. And once that child's work was complete, he was snatched up to God and to his throne. And I, I wondered why John added this little section at the end. It's one thing to say that God took up this child and put him, you know, next to him or put him in a safe place in the 
heavenly palace, whatever that is, but there was a specific emphasis that this child was put next to his throne. That means two things. Number one, there's, this is royalty. This one belongs with the kingly family. And number two, this one is protected at all cost. God is protecting this child because of the plan that this child is all about. And then finally, it goes on. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. After this Savior came and went back up into heaven, the woman, his church, God's people, they continued their lives, seemingly ordinary lives, in the wilderness. A place where there's not a lot of comfort, but God promises, I will prepare, I will I will provide for you here. And then finally it says she would be there for 1,260 days. And here's where you really have to look at the rest of the Bible and the rest of Revelation to make sense of some of these numbers. But uh, we see this number come up in two places. And if you do the math, this also equates to 42 months. 42 months equals 1,260 days. And 42 months is also equal to three and a half years. A time times and half a time, three and a half. And again, this, this goes all the way back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament where we see these references take place. But when we look at all of them together, the, the picture given is that 1,260 days refers to the total time of God's New Testament church being on this earth. Again, not a literal, this is how long until heaven comes, until Jesus comes, but this is representative of the entire New Testament era from, from Jesus' ascension into heaven until the day he comes back to make everything new. And as you think about this, I mean, there's so much going on, but what does God take care of the most? He doesn't come to this woman and give her an epidural to help her through her pregnancy pain. I hear it's wonderful, though. You should try it. He, he does not come to this woman, his church, and say, you know what, I'm going to create a palace for you just to sit out, to hang out in until, until you know, we get through this time. But God says, no, you're going to be in a wilderness, but I promise I'll take care of you. What I'm more interested in is your rescue. I could give you relief, but that's not my priority. My priority is your rescue, not just your relief, not your comfort. And for Christians in the first century, I can't imagine what this must have meant for them. So, so what you mean everything's not out of control? God would say, no, no, no. I know what you're going through. You're in the wilderness. The horsemen are all around you, the black one, the pale one, the red one. They're, they're going to be a part of your life in this world, but, but I have not forgotten you. And I will provide. I will take care of your rescue first and foremost, but your comfort, your comfort might not be there until Jesus comes again. And so just with this, this, this is the salvation story that, God, that, that John is able to see in a vision that, that there's this son who brings rescue to this world and God protects that at all costs. And while we wait for all things to be finished, there will be, there will be some time in the wilderness. And here's where things get real crazy as we continue in the book of Revelation, because here's where John sees a vision of something quite startling. The war 
in heaven. He says, then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. They, they, there was something they were fighting over. We're not told yet. There was something they were fighting over, but it was important enough that both sides were fighting. But he, the dragon, was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. And this is going to be so important as we, as we see what's coming up next. But the devil had a place in heaven where he could do something, and we're about to see what that is. But after this war, his place is gone. He's been evicted. They lost their place. It goes on and explains a little bit more about what this means. That The dragon was hurled down out of heaven. That dragon, here again, here's where the Bible explains itself. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And this really tells us what the dragon was bent on doing both here on earth and up in heaven. It was leading people astray, or even trying to lead God astray. And here's, here's what that looks like for me and for you. Again, using a vision that, that maybe employs some, some uh, physical details to try to explain what's going on on a spiritual scale. Leading people astray is, is almost as if Satan is standing up in a courtroom and pleading with the judge. He's, he's giving some facts or some details to try to get the judge to, to render a verdict in a certain way. And for me and for you, this is what that looks like. Satan goes up to him and he says, you know what Matt did yesterday, right? You know what he said, right? You know what he did on County Road 52? You know what he was thinking? You know that thing he did years ago? That guilt or that shame that he just can't get rid of? You know what he deserves, right? God, you, th you think he loves you? You think he's worth anything to you? And with accusation and accusation, the devil, before God in heaven, would stand up and list all the evidence that there is to convict me and to convict you. And sometimes it's a simple echo through your own heart of the guilt or the shame that you just can't seem to shake. Maybe it's not, how could God love me? But even a lower level, how could people love me? What if they knew what's going on in my head? And as these accusations roll around, what we see in Revelation 16 is so important. The devil has lost his place. There is no room for him in God's courtroom because the case has already been closed. The verdict has already been declared that you are not the one on trial. Jesus stood there for you. And whenever the devil tries to bring accusation against you or against me, it's not up to me or for you, to you to say, well, yeah, but I was having a bad day, or yeah, but I made up for it. We don't have to defend ourselves because the punishment we deserved was already placed on Jesus. And he's standing before the Father and saying, Father, there's nothing more to be done. And on top of that, Jesus stands in and says, all the righteousness and perfection that is required of this person, I did it for them. The verdict has already been given that you are justified before God. You're declared not guilty. And there's nothing the devil can do to change that. The only thing he can do is to get you to doubt that. So the book of Revelation 
shows all those Christians in the first century who are being persecuted, maybe some of them, not sure if God still loved them. He's telling them and showing them that there was no reason to doubt. They were justified, just as we today stand justified before God. And so that's, this is where you see this declaration come from heaven in this vision. As John looks at this whole thing unfolding and how the devil was thrown out of heaven, here's the consequence or here's the result. I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. Think back to what Jesus told his disciples right as he was going to leave this world. He said, now all authority has been given to me because he has completed the mission that he came to do, to rescue, to rescue his people. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night, he has lost his place. He has been hurled down. And then here's the cool part. They have triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb because of the punishment that has already been taken place and by the word of their testimony where it's not about us defending ourselves from his accusations. It's about us testifying to what Jesus has done for us because of Jesus because of Jesus, I stand before God. It's not because of me. It's not my testimony. It's my faith in him. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. This is so powerful to those first century Christians. Death was not something to be afraid of. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. I think this would be great on a tombstone, don't you? He did not love his life so much as to shrink from death, or she did not love her life so much as to shrink from death, but rather there's such confidence in what Jesus did, in what Jesus did, that no accusation can make you fall. Rejoice, therefore, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Which brings us back to the first question. Why just make him short? Why not just end him for good? Later in the book of Revelation, it says that his status right now is like a chained dog. God is firmly holding on to that chain. He, he can't have total rule over this world, but he's still there. Why not put down the dragon? Why not get rid of him completely? And again, here's where I can't speak for God. He never gives a clear answer into all the different reasons why he sees fit to allow this roaring lion to, to live on this world. But here's what I do know. When it comes to the basic order of this world, it's not about God allowing good and bad, right and wrong, righteous and evil. It's not about him having both things and saying, this will be a part of my world. Really, there is this one thing that governs those both. Free will. In order for Adam and Eve to show God love, they had to have a choice to not love. So Adam, Eve, this one tree, love me and honor me by not eating of it. They had a choice. Married people, you, you know this. Like, um, you know, if it's a Friday night and the guys are saying, hey, come on, let's go catch a movie. Let's go have some fun. And then you say, no, I'd rather spend the evening with my wife. Oh, that's going to be a good week for you. Love requires a choice. And the beauty is love allows us, um, 
Choice allows us to demonstrate love, but the side effect is that it also allows us to demonstrate evil. And as long as we're in this life, there's going to be two forces that we get to choose between the good or the evil, the right or the wrong. And in that, God allows us as his children to demonstrate love to him. And that might be one thing, but here's what I can tell you for sure. Life in this wilderness is unique. We get to do something now that we won't get to do for the eternity in heaven. And as you look at this, God can do something now that he won't get to do for eternity in heaven. And it has everything to do with this. Hope shines brightest in the dark. God's glory shines brightest in the dark. His power shines brightest in the dark. Just because he gives us the ability to resist a temptation proves that he has already won. Hope for us shines brightest in the dark. And even in the presence of not just the worldly evil, but even the presence of the evil one, we know that we do not walk alone. Hope shines brightest in the dark. And to close, I want to give one quick example of what this looked like. One day, Jesus sent out 72 of his followers, and he said, go tell people about the kingdom of God and prove to them your message is right by performing miracles and casting out demons. And so I'm sure with some skepticism, these 72 go out and they start telling people about Jesus and they command demons to come out and it actually worked. (laughs) So they must have had like a group meeting when they all got back because the 72 come back and they start to share news of what happened. And here's how it went. The 72 returned with joy and they said, Jesus, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus replied, I know you didn't have to tell me because while you were out there, I saw Satan fall from from heaven like lightning. It was incredible where here he thought he was doing all this stuff, but through the simple preaching of my name, he fell. Every time my name was mentioned, his leash got shorter and shorter. And they were all like, wow, this was amazing. This was amazing. And I want to tell you, that's what the the word of Jesus can do in your life too. That even in the presence of an evil one, simply mentioning the name Jesus takes away the accusations and it takes away the doubt of what God says about you. In fact, that's what we see from Jesus. He says, don't be so excited about what you guys have been doing. He goes on to tell them, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but that your names are written in heaven. And the devil has lost his place. He can't change what's written in heaven. So take heart. Even when times are rough, and when the city with seven, on seven hills starts to oppress you and persecute you, take heart, because your names are written in heaven. And this is what we see in the book of Revelation, that Jesus won the war so that you can win the battle. He has won the war for you so that you can win the battle of the accusations that roll around your heart. And you can win the battle of knowing where you stand with God. So let's go back to Revelation 2. This is going to tie us into next week. With all this in mind, knowing that we've got evil around us and an evil one before us, it says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. The first century Christians are saying, we know it's happened. You will suffer persecution. Yeah, it's going on right now. But then here's the encouragement. Be faithful. Be filled with faith, even to the point of death. 
What you are holding on to, do not let it go, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. This can be a lot to take in in this world. The evil, the, the horsemen that come into our lives, the evil one who accuses us day and night, just to tell us, be faithful, that can be a big burden to carry. But what we'll see next week is the blessing of being able to look around because this is a burden. This is, this is a, a story that you're not in alone. And we'll pick it up there next week as we talk about the blessing of being part of the church. For today, let's close with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, it's true that there are a lot of physical things that we deal with in this world, but ultimately in Revelation, you show us that there is an entire spiritual, supernatural side to this. And in a way that startles our imagination, you show us a war that broke out in heaven between the devil and your angels. We thank you that the war is over and that you have won. We thank you that the devil has no place in heaven. And even when his accusations come against us, even when our own sinful heart tries to convict us that we are unloved, we thank you that that's a battle that we can win because Jesus has already won the war. So still our hearts with that peace and allow us this week to reflect your grace and your forgiveness in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.